Good morning, church. So good to see so many of you again. Thank you that you're still inviting us, especially after you heard my coworker last week. Don't tell him I said that, okay. Today, I have to be honest, before we turn to the text before us today, this is not a text that I would probably pick to preach as a guest preacher in another congregation. Yet one of the benefits and one of the beauties of expositional preaching is that we go verse by verse. And therefore, currently in, in our church at Hy-Vee Bible Church, we're going through the letter to 1 Timothy. And therefore, this is the text before us that I'm preaching uh, this afternoon in our congregation as well. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized this will be a wonderful text to bring before you as well. Uh, this is definitely not a milk text. This is definitely a meat text. And uh, having the chance to fellowship with you and uh, worship with you, I know that you are a church that can handle some steak from the pulpit. That being said, I also acknowledge that I am in desperate need of the Spirit's help and guidance as I exposit the text before us. So before I pray, let's read the text before us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 18 through 20. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for my dear brothers and sisters for the opportunity that we have to come before your word. Father, I come before you and I ask for your help in accurately expositing the truth of the text before us. May I be a servant, not a cook, but a servant who brings that meal which you have already prepared without adding anything to it or subtracting anything from it that you originally placed in here. May your name and your name alone receive the glory. May those who do not know you yet today, may their eyes be open, their ears be open, their hearts of, of stone crushed and softened so that they may see their desperate need for a savior. Lord, we ask this in your name, amen. Battle of the Bull Run was one of the first land battles in the Civil War. Soon after, it received a nickname as the Picnic Battle, mostly due to the arrogance and the ignorance of the Union side. You see, the Union was so sure that this conflict would end very quickly and that it will be resolved with a swift victory 
that men, women, and children made their way from Washington uh, to Centerville, Virginia with picnic baskets and opera glasses in hand. For them, they thought this would be a sporting event to behold with a sandwich in hand and opera glass in the other. They were so arrogant and sure that the Confederates had no chance. Yet at 4 p.m. that day, the Union generals realized that they were outmatched and ordered their troops to retreat. Soldiers, horses, and wagons were headed in their own direction. Running for their lives, they were tripping over the civilians who were sitting there and enjoying their picnic. The Union's army defeat at the Battle of the Bull Run shocked and sobered members of the Congress who were also present there that day, making it painfully clear that this war ahead of them will be no picnic. Unfortunately, many people in the church treat our spiritual life in the same way. We either underestimate the enemy that is in front of us, or we think that it is no battle at all, but simply a life of happiness and picnics. And therefore, in writing to his young protege, to his fellow minister in the faith, Timothy, Paul wants to remind him that this is a spiritual warfare. He does not want Timothy to underestimate the enemy. He wants him to be fully aware of the spiritual warfare in front of them. And therefore, he writes to him with this clear admonition, this clear charge to fight the good fight. Or as some of your translations might say, to wage the good warfare. I've divided the passage in front of us today into two sections. First, we will see the charge that is given to Timothy. And then secondly, we will see the casualties of this warfare as well. However, I feel like two points is not sufficient, so each point will have three subpoints. So first, we'll see that this charge, in listing and describing this charge to Timothy, Paul also describes its purpose. So the charge and its purpose. Then he giving, in giving this charge, he also gives its motivation, so the charge and its motivation, and then he also gives its manner, the charge's manner. And then for the second part of your notes, we will see the casualties and their rejection. Then we will see the casualties and their names. And then finally, we will conclude today by looking at the casualties and their discipline. So once again, those of you who are taking notes, the charge and its purpose, the charge, its motivation, the charge and its manner, and then the casualties and their rejection, the casualties and their names, and the casualties and their discipline. So let's begin with the first part there, the charge. Our passage begins with a very clear military terminology, this charge. Some of your translations might have the word this command. The Greek word translated as a military order given to a soldier. 
To put it in another way, this charge that Paul is given is Timothy's marching orders. They are his military command for the task that is in front of him. This is not the first time that Paul has already spoken of this charge. In fact, if you look at the start of the chapter of 1 Timothy, in the verses 3 through 5, there uh, Paul would write, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. The aim of our charge, as he says in verse 5, is love. The charge that he's speaking of is the charge given to Timothy, the command given to Timothy to deal with these false teachers, those who are preaching a false gospel, a false doctrine in the church of Ephesus. So while Paul was urging Timothy to do this charge at the beginning of the chapter. Now he is no longer urging, but he's entrusting. He is giving this command to Timothy to, care, uh, to uh, carry out. Another way that this Greek word to entrust is translated is to deposit, as though you're putting something of value into the bank for their holding on to it. So important was this charge that the gospel truth was proclaimed to be proclaimed accurately in the church of Ephesus. And those who are not doing so are to be dealt with that Paul entrusts, deposits, hands over this responsibility to Timothy. In fact, as you study the book, the letter to 1 Timothy, you realize that Paul is currently not there. He's on his way. He wants to make it to Ephesus. But he's telling Timothy, in case I delay, take care of this. So important was this charge. So important was this command that Paul entrusts it to Timothy. So what is the purpose of this charge? What is the goal of making sure that these people are not preaching their own doctrine? And we see this in the middle, in the very uh, center point of our passage. The goal of this charge is, end of verse 18, that you may wage good warfare. Some of your translations might say that you, Timothy, may fight the good fight. Paul, once again, continues with the military terminology. He doesn't want Timothy to be fooled that this is some picnic, that his ministry in the church of Ephesus is just fun and games. No, he says, this is a battle. And I want you, young Timothy, to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight. In fact, this is a language that Paul would use often. In 1 Timothy 6.12, he says again to Timothy, fight the good fight of the faith. In his second letter to Timothy, he would say, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and at the time of my departure has come, I have fought the good fight. Apostle Paul always saw the life in the church, the life as redeemed and regenerated believers, not as a walk in the park, but as a military conflict. 
And the conflict is not against flesh and blood, but as we read in Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, I want to stop there. Do you understand that in our Christian walk, in our Christian sanctification, we are engaged in a battle? I think the church tends to swing the pendulum either both ways. Either there's some churches that are too preoccupied with the spiritual things and Satan. And then there's churches that are completely ignorant of any kind of spiritual warfare. Both ends of that pendulum swing have their errors. But the word of God wants us to be clear of this truth that we are engaged in warfare. Some of you know that I was born and raised in Ukraine, and one of the things that I'm hearing from my relatives who are still there is that the men coming back from the front lines have the hardest time when they return back to the civilian life because to them, there's this paradigm shift because they see all these people living their lives as though life is normal. They go to work, they have parties, they date, they get married, and they just saw thousands and thousands of people killed and destroyed, bombs going off, and yet there's parties here. And sometimes we in our Christian life treat our sanctification and our spiritual walk in the same way. We think it's a picnic. We think that there's no spiritual forces at work against the church and against the gospel message. Yet time and time, even Apostle Peter had to remind that our enemy is not simply sitting around, but he is walking around seeking those that he can devour. Our enemy is actively pursuing. Our enemy is actively involved in the battle. Brothers and sisters, there is a battle and that's what Paul wants to remind Timothy, to fight the good fight. As a shepherd, Timothy is not to sit on the sidelines, but his charge is to go and rebuke and fight against those who have made a mockery of the gospel message, mockery of the gospel truth. And notice, Paul is not talking about one single mission. Edmund Hebert in his commentary says, the military figure has a reference not to a single battle, but to the whole campaign. Paul, that brave veteran in spiritual conflict, well knew that Christian life is a continuing warfare under the banner of the king of kings. Brothers and sisters, there's no such thing as retirement in our Christian warfare. You don't fight as a teenager and then you just go on living a happy Christian life as a senior. No, you're still involved in the spiritual warfare for as long as the Lord has you on this earth. Are you aware of this? Are you dressed for battle? 
Are there things entangling you, preventing you from fighting well, from running this race? Are you constantly, every morning, dressed in the armor of God that Paul would write about to the church in Ephesus? Or are you going as though to a picnic with a basket and an opera glass in your hand? This was a convicting truth for me. And I hope this is a convicting truth for you as well. Also notice this. Paul makes sure to highlight to Timothy that the battle, the warfare which he is to wage is what? It's described as a good warfare or fight the good fight. The mere implication of this is that there are some battles that are not good. We as believers should not be engaged in all warfare, but the warfare that we're called to be engaged in is the good warfare, namely the warfare for the truth of the gospel. And the sad reality, and as even we see in Paul's letters to various churches, is many believers are engaged in warfare that is not good. They're engaged in their own warfare. Philip Ryken would say throughout this epistle, Timothy's repeatedly warned against dangers of needless warfare. He should stay away from the issues that promote controversy. As an elder in the church, he must not be quarrelsome. Indeed, anyone who has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about the words is a false teacher in accordance to Paul. Brothers and sisters, churches these days are involved in many battles that are not good battles. The church is never commanded to be involved in political battles. How often pastors and shepherds and the sheep are involved in political battles in their church. That is not the warfare that the Word of God has in mind when it's describing the battle which we are to prepare for. So many churches are involved in warfare and battles over traditions over the color of the carpet and the way in which the pulpit needs to be painted. Well done, by the way. (laughs) And yet time and time again, there's battles that are being waged that are not battles of importance. Calvin P. Van Rieken is helpful in highlighting the church's responsibility. He says the primary work of the institutional church is not to promote social justice, It is to warn the people of God's divine justice. The primary business of the church is not to call society to be more righteous, but to tell persons of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. The church's primary work is not to tell who to elect to public office. It is to tell those in every nation of the one who elected many to eternal life. This is done primarily through pure preaching of the gospel, pure administration of the sacraments, and the exercise of church discipline. Brothers and sisters, as those who are part of this church body, you are to be involved in a good fight. Fight for what matters. Fight for what has eternal value. Don't fight for the things of this world. We are, as Christians, are called to fight the spiritual warfare. However, Paul here is very helpful to Timothy. 
He understand that this task, especially as a young shepherd, some estimated Timothy's age at the reception of this letter to be anywhere in his early 30s to maybe his mid-30s. He was a young pastor. And the charge, the task that Paul is entrusting him with is a heavy one. It's a challenging one. In fact, some of these false teachers were leaders in the Ephesians church who were much older and much wiser than Timothy. And Timothy... His job is to come and confront them and rebuke them for false preaching of the truth. And so Paul here gives the motivation. So first we saw the purpose of this charge. The purpose of this charge was to fight the good fight. Then here now Paul gives to Timothy the motivation for this charge. Look at the motivation in verse 18. This charge I entrust to you in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. The way in which Timothy is to be motivated for waging this warfare is to remember the prophecies. And right away in our conservative reform circles, when we hear prophecies, we get a little uncomfortable. What does he mean by this? What is this prophecies that he is talking about? In fact, Paul is pointing back to a certain event that took place in Timothy's life, and he wants Timothy to remember that which happened and to use it as an encouragement for his current charge to fight the good fight. What is Paul talking about? What happened in the past that he wants Timothy to remember, and what are these prophecies that were spoken of him that are to be used as motivation for Timothy's current mission to fight the good fight? Most commentators tend to agree one of the best ways to interpret Scripture is to interpret it with Scripture. And therefore, we look for similar context and similar words used in the same letter, and we see that here. So turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. There in chapter 4, in verses 14 through 15, Paul reminds Timothy of his day of ordination, where he was ordained towards ministry. And look what happened there. 1 Timothy 4, 14 through 15. He says, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Now, this language is foreign to us. We are not used to this type of way in which ordinations take place. However, this was a common occurrence in the early church. We see in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit would speak through those who had the gifts of prophecy to point out those men who would fight in the ministry fight, if you will. Acts 13, we have an example of Barnabas and Saul and how they were called into ministry. We were told in Acts 13, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after 
fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Once again, foreign to us in our modern day. But in the early church, the Holy Spirit, God would use the Holy Spirit to speak to the men in the church and to verbally, vocally announce those who have been gifted towards the work of ministry. And then that prophecy would be affirmed by the elders laying of hands on that man and then sending them out into ministry. So there's three things that we see happened on that day for Timothy and three things that Paul wants him to remember. First, God gave Timothy a gift. The gift that Paul wants Timothy to remember is not something that Timothy mustered on his own. It's not something that he got when he went to seminary and he developed the gift in seminary. No, the gift of preaching, the gift of ministry work was given to Timothy by God. Secondly, God confirmed that gift through a vocal proclamation. Once again, we do not know what that may look like. When it says in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit spoke, we don't know if it was an audible voice. We don't know if God used certain men in that church to come up and confirm to Timothy his gift. But all we know is that God, through the Spirit and through the use of prophecies, would confirm that gift in Timothy. And then finally, God used the elders in that church to come and affirm Timothy's gift by laying of the hands. And these things is what Paul wants young Timothy to remember. Timothy, as you go into this battle, as you go into this warfare, remember that your calling was not your own, but it was God who gave you these gifts. Timothy, if you ever feel shaky and your legs are wobbling and you're scared to fight this good fight, remember that God sent his Holy Spirit to vocally affirm that this is your job to do. And then Timothy, if you still need encouragement, remember that the church came around you by the elders and affirmed you for this good work. The motivation for Timothy to fight the good fight was that of what God has done in his life. And some of you say, you know what? Well, this is great for Timothy. I'm not a pastor. I'm not an elder. I am not in ministry. What good is this to me? Brothers and sisters, do you notice how often in the word of God, memory and remembering is used as motivation for our spiritual fight? Do you understand what a wonderful gift our memory is? I know that profaned by sin, too often we use our memories for wrong things, not to glorify God, but actually to glorify ourselves. But the memory was designed by God for us to recall his works. Time and time again in the Old Testament, the command given to the people of God is remember, remember. Do you remember what I have done for you? Do you remember what I have done when you were in Egypt? Do you remember when I took you across? Do you remember how I provided for you? And so is the case in the New Testament. God commands people to remember. 1 Corinthians 1.26, For consider your calling. 
We are called to remember who we once were and what God has done, and that is used as a motivation to encourage us in our spiritual warfare, in our spiritual walk. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, says, live in such a way, walk in such a way, that resembles your calling to which you are called. Brothers and sisters, have you looked back to God's provision in your life? Have you looked back to who you were apart from God and who you are in Him now? Have you looked back to the motivation, uh, to, the, to the years of mercy and grace bestowed upon you and use that as motivation to encourage your current spiritual walk? This is what the Word of God is commanding us to do, is to look back to God's provision and to use that as encouragement to trust Him in our current battle right now. And this is exactly what Paul is telling young Timothy here as well. Timothy, fight the good fight in accordance to that which was said about you, in accordance to the gift which was given to you by God. We come now to the last sub-point in the charge. We've seen the charge and its purpose. The purpose of it was to fight the good warfare. We've seen the charge and its motivation. Timothy was to do this in accordance with the prophecies that were made of him. And now we see the charge and its manner. How is Timothy to fight this warfare? How is Timothy to be involved in this good fight? What is the manner? What is the means by which he is to do so? And we see here at the end of 18 and beginning in 19, wage the good warfare. How? Holding faith and good conscience. The way in which Paul is encouraging and charging Peter to fight the good warfare is by the means, in a manner of, by holding the faith and the good conscience. What are these terms? What does Paul mean when he tells Timothy that he is to hold the faith and hold the conscience? So many people in trying to understand these terms try to separate them and define them separately from one another or individually. However, for Paul, and especially in this letter, he uses them as a pair three times in this letter. In the beginning of chapter 1, in our current passage, and then he will use this exact pair as an L or as a deacon qualification. Deacons are to behold the mystery of faith and a sincere conscience. Time and time again, for Paul, good, uh, faith and good conscience work hand in hand. Therefore, in trying to understand what Paul is talking about here, we must look at them together. We must interpret them as a pair. And therefore, in, by faith, he's not talking about saving faith. But rather, especially as we see in the deacon's qualification, the mystery of faith is a reference to that which is believed, the true doctrine, the gospel, the word of God. 
He's telling Timothy, you fight the good warfare by holding on to the truth. You fight the good fight by holding on to the gospel. You fight the good fight by holding on to the word of God. And the conscience, the conscience is God's, cell, uh, God's gift of an organ of decision that he has given us, as some commentators described it. It's the self-judging faculty which he has given to humankind. It's the moral compass, as many have described it. So what does it mean to have a good conscience? Well, a good conscience is a conscience that is pure. It's a conscience that is not convicting you. It's a conscience that is sincere, a conscience that is at rest. Brothers and sisters, how can believers have a conscience that is pure when they walk in a way that brings glory to God? When they're not sinning against God, our conscience is pure. Our conscience is sincere. Our conscience is at rest. So what does Paul mean for Timothy to hold on to faith and to your conscience? He means that if you hold on to the truth of God's word, that which you believe, and then if you live in such a way that doesn't offend your conscience, so then we have belief and practice. The pair which he has in mind here throughout 1 Timothy is that of truth, doctrine, and then practice and life. It's Timothy, fight the good fight by holding on to the truth of God's word and by living in such a way that your conscience remains pure. That is the part of qualifications for deacons. He tells that the deacons must be men who behold the mystery of faith. They must know the word of God. They must know true doctrine. They must behold it and then have a sincere conscience, meaning live in such a way that your conscience is not defiled. Live in such a way that shows a close connection between what you believe and what you practice. This is what he's telling here to Timothy to do. This is the manner in which he is to fight this good fight. Kent Hughes goes on to say, What you know and believe about God is everything. Because what you know and believe will determine how you live. Doctrine determines our conduct. If you believe the truth of God, and if you believe what he says about himself in his word, then your life reflects that. We always say at Highview Bible Church that theology is, proper theology of God is very practical. You cannot say that you believe in the God of scriptures and then live in such a way that completely goes against that. That means you don't believe in God of scriptures. If you truly understand who God is, and you say that you are a believer, then your life will resemble that. Fruits will resemble the root. If there is root that is uh, rooted in the truth of the word of God and saved through the work of the Holy Spirit and covered by the blood of Christ, the life of that person will uh, be living in such a way that will resemble those two together. Isn't it fascinating that Martin Luther completely understood the pairing of these two? 
You guys remember at the Diet of Worms in 1521 when he was told to recant or to reject those statements that he wrote against the Roman Catholic Church and against the Pope? What did Martin Luther say that day? He says, my conscience is what? Captive to the word of God. Martin Luther understand that to have a sincere conscience, it needs to be captivated. It needs to be grasped by the word of God. And then look what he says. I cannot and I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. For Martin Luther, he wanted to have a sincere, pure, good conscience. And for him to recant those things which he saw the Roman Catholic Church doing in contradiction to the Word of God was to go against his conscience. And if he was to go against his conscience, then there would be no truth that he holds on to. So for him to hold on to the truth was to have a sincere conscience. To reject the truth is to not have a sincere conscience. And his conscience was captivated by the Word of God. Brothers and sisters, as you fight your spiritual warfare, is your conscience captivated by the Word of God? Are you holding on to the true doctrine, true teaching of God's Word? Do you have sound theology? And then, the, do you have a pure conscience? Do you have a life that reflects that truth? These are the two means, the two ways in which Timothy and us as believers are called to fight the good fight. Now we come to the second part of our sermon, the casualties. Every warfare, including the spiritual warfare, has its casualties. And here, Paul, being a good teacher that he was, wanted to illustrate the importance of holding on to faith and conscience by giving Timothy a counterexample of what happens when you don't. What happens to those who don't hold on to faith and good conscience? And look, we have that example here in the text before us. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Paul is telling him that there were some in the church, and there are currently some in the church who have rejected this. Now, what is he saying they rejected? English translation, unfortunately, doesn't help us to properly understand what Paul is saying, because we think that they rejected faith and good conscience. Greek is a lot more clear. If you were to translate Greek word for word, it says, conscience which some put away. The rejection and the putting away is not a reference to the putting away of faith, but it's actually a rejection of their conscience. The way that some have shipwrecked the faith was because they've rejected their good conscience. In other words, when the Word of God 
through the, word of, through the work of the Spirit, was convicting them in their conscience, instead of submitting to it and repenting of their sin, they rejected their conscience. The Greek word here for rejection is they literally threw it away. They thwarted it. They tossed it. These men who were leaders in Ephesians church, when their conscience was convicting them of their sin and of their error, instead of listening to it, repenting of their sin, and coming before the congregation, they rejected their conscience. They ignored it. When Timothy is told to hold on to the conscience, they have tossed their conscience. John MacArthur goes on to say, they did not want anything to do with it. They did not want a pure conscience. They don't want to live for holiness. They don't want to live for purity. They want to live for their own lusts, their own success, their own gratification. As a result, when they throw away a good conscience, they shipwreck their faith. It's like throwing away the rudder in the ship. You are at the mercy of the wind and the sea. They confess to be Christians and pastors and teachers of God's law, but with no interest in purity and no commitment to holiness. Do you see now why it's so important to hold on to both? Because demons also believe. Demons have really good theology. And yet... When it comes to obeying the word of God and repenting of your sin and having a sincere conscience, they don't. And so, therefore, you can have men that, like Pharisees who look good on the appearance. They can memorize and recite to you all of Scripture. They're like whitewashed tombs. Yet when it comes to their life, when it comes to practicality of living out the truth, they are hypocrites. They reject their conscience when it convicts them of their error. And then to take the order reversed, if you keep ignoring your conscience, do you think you're going to preach truth that is accurate to the Word of God? If you keep ignoring the Spirit convicting you of your sin, do you think the doctrine will remain true? No, it will not. In fact, another way why I told you why this passage is challenging is because a lot of people use this text as argument for Arminian theology, saying that as a result, these people did not hold on to the faith and to the conscience, and therefore they shipwrecked their faith, so they lost their salvation. However, here's where it helps us to know a little bit of the Greek, a little bit of the original languages, so that we don't make such false statements. While the e even ESV and NASB and other English translations, uh, translations say that they have made shipwreck of their faith, the there is nowhere to be found in the Greek. There's no possessive pronouns in the Greek in this passage. Rather, the text says they have shipwrecked the faith. Not their faith. They never had it. To begin with, they shipwrecked the faith, meaning they have shipwrecked the truth. When they ignored the conscience as false teachers, when they have tossed it away, they removed the rudder from the ship and they shipwrecked the truth. 
And therefore, the message which they were preaching was no longer pure and undefiled, but it was destroyed. It was shipwrecked. It's even funnier. Well, it's funny to me. I don't know if it's funny to you. If you study this, Paul introduces himself in 1 Timothy as an apostolos. That's where we get our term for apostle or for an elder. The original Greek meaning for apostolos was a ship commissioned by the emperor to deliver precious cargo. That was the original meaning of an apostle. An apostle has nautical roots in it, the meaning and the origin of that term. So Paul is an apostle, a ship commissioned by God himself to deliver the truth of the gospel message. And yet, look at the opposite example here. These men who are false teachers... Unlike Paul, who was commissioned to deliver the message safely without destroying it, these men have shipwrecked the truth. They ignored the conscience. When the Spirit was convicting them of their error, they have made a shipwreck of the faith, not their faith. They've ignored the truth. Edmund Hebert was helpful here. He says, these false teachers treated the matter of maintaining their spiritual integrity as a minor matter, as they played fast and loose with scriptures. When their conscience goaded them, they thrust it away from their good conscience. The yielding to sin dulls the perception of truth and opens the way for the influx of error. And then Paul gives us their names. No longer is Paul generic, but he gets into specifics. And he names two men who are most likely prominent leaders, maybe even elders and teachers in the Ephesians church. Their names are Hymenaeus and Alexander. Hymenaeus is mentioned later in the letter as someone who had a funky view of resurrection. He kept saying that resurrection already occurred and therefore you can live however you want. And therefore he was labeled a blasphemer. Then we also learn of this Alexander. The challenge with Alexander, that was a very common name in that day. There's some Alexanders, there's Alexander the coppersmith that we learn of who uh, did something against Paul that we don't really know. We're not sure. However, we're told that these men are blasphemers. These are men who did not teach proper truth. Why? Because they threw away their conscience and have made shipwreck of the truth. They destroyed the truth of the message. And so Paul tells us now of their discipline. 1 Timothy 1.20, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may not learn, so that they may now learn not to blaspheme. This is a harsh language. We're not used to speaking in such a way. Yet in this language, there's a lot of love and mercy and grace shown both to these two men and to the church. Because for Apostle Paul, this is spiritual warfare. It's sad to us today that especially smaller churches like us at Highview and like you, sometimes we're tempted to ignore sin in people's lives because we don't want to lose anyone. 
We don't want to offend anyone. We rather put on our blinders to truth than to accurately point out sin in someone's life. The terminology for hand someone over to Satan has been used by Paul previously in his letter to uh, Corinthians to excommunicate someone. To hand someone over to Satan was to remove them from the fellowship in the body of believers. They were to be handed over to the world. And the ruler of this world is Satan himself. But notice the beauty and the grace that is shown here. For this excommunication is not done without any hope. This excommunication is not done without any mercy or grace. But the purpose of this discipline that Paul is doing to Hymenaeus and Alexander is very redemptive. The goal of it is so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Philip Ryken says, Discipline is not intended simply to punish sin, but also to restore the sinner. Martin Luther pointed out that it has medicinal purposes. It is not intended to harm, but to heal. When it is used properly, church discipline maintains the glory of God and the purity of his church and the keeping and reclaiming of disobedient sinners. This is especially true when you realize who Apostle Paul was himself. If you just look in your Bibles to uh, the top or the beginning of chapter 1, there, Apostle Paul reminds us of his own life before Christ. He there reminds us of who he was. And one of the things that he describes himself as prior to God coming into his life is that he himself was a blasphemer. What is Paul now handing over these men to Satan for? so that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul himself was once a blasphemer. He himself once experienced the loving mercy and grace of his Savior, and therefore he knows that the best thing he can do for these men is not to pamper them and say, you know what, you messed up a little bit here. You just threw away your conscience just a little bit. You can stay. No, he knows the best thing you can do is throw them out for the purposes so that they may learn, so that God may work in their life. So that there can be hope for them that they would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, that is the text before us today. You may say, what do we take away from this? First, I want you to know that there is spiritual warfare all around us. Do not be forgetful. Do not be ignorant of the truth. That we are in a war. Act like it. Walk like it. Dress like it. Remove everything that entangles you in your life. Fight the good fight. Secondly, we see that love and the care that Apostle Paul has for the church. He so loved the communion of brothers and sisters that he wanted to protect the integrity of Scripture. 
to the point where he was willing and then to charge his, his uh, young pastor Timothy to do the same, to fight the good fight and remove those who are teaching false things. Do not let them stay around just because they're the highest tithers in the church. Do not let them stay around because they have political influence in the city. Do not let them stay around because they bring other friends. Because if they're teaching another gospel other than the one that was entrusted to you, Timothy, send them out so that they may learn. Or sisters, if, if perhaps there are some in here today who do not know Christ yet, our passage ends with hope. Our passage ends with a promise of the gospel. Come to God. Do not keep throwing away your conscience that is convicting you. Especially if you're here in this church and you hear the preaching of God's word and you're around the fellowship of other believers. Do not ignore the Spirit's voice that keeps convicting you of your sin. Come on your knees. Come before the Father. Ask Him of forgiveness and live for Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this charge that was given to Timothy, but also a charge that is given to us who are your children. A charge to fight the good fight. A charge to live for you. A charge to remove everything that entangles us. Father, thank you for your word. And once again, Lord, I lift up and I ask for those who are here who may have the appearance of faith, and yet their lives, their lives are not yours. Those who look like whitewashed tombs on the outside and look like proper Christians, yet inside they keep worshiping themselves and keep serving their own desires. Father, break their hearts of stone. Father, reveal to them their need for a Savior. May they serve you. May they fight the good fight for your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen.